Welcome to Living Love, the radio broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Benton, Illinois. Our desire is to live love to God, to others, and the nations. We hope this week's broadcast will bless and encourage you. Now, let's dive into God's Word and see how we can live love today. Glad you're here this morning. We're uh, second chapter of the book of Philippians today. Um, By the way, I've had a little struggle which side of the pulpit to stand on. Because if you haven't realized, I don't stand behind it, I stand beside it. And so I think I stood on this side last week, so I'll try this side. I want you all to feel just as equally important one way or the other. But uh, we just kind of, we're started into this uh, second chapter of the book of Philippians, and uh, it's probably most well-known for a section in it called the mind of Christ. And by the way, I hope you're going to be in Sunday school today. And if you're in adult Sunday school, you're going to be studying the first 15 verses, the second chapter. And so you're going to kind of get a a bigger part of that. Uh, But that phrase, the mind of Christ, we're on Sunday morning going to look at it next week, that part. Uh, But probably that section beginning in verse 5, is a a hymn of the early church. If you uh, have a modern translation, it's sort of set off in prose. Uh, And there's a little bit of debate whether Paul was quoting a hymn that they already knew or John, whether he was introducing a new hymn. And that Epaphroditus had brought the letter, and they were reading it to the church in Philippi, and they were all there, and after they finished the letter, Epaphroditus was going to teach them the tune. Can you imagine a worship pastor having to teach his congregation a new song? I mean, I, I just, I, by the way, I have also thought there was a day somewhere in the history of the church where somebody said, amazing grace what is that? Why can't we just sing the old songs we've always used to sing? I I know there was a day, and you understand contemporary, half of the word contemporary, more than half is temporary. Uh, Everything just keeps changing, but evidently he might have been teaching them this song that was praise to Jesus and a call to have the mind of Christ. Well, we're going to get to that on the worship service next Sunday. So today we're going to focus on those first four verses, which are kind of the introduction to the mind of Christ. But I want to kind of just talk a little bit about this idea of the mind and thinking, because probably the letter that Paul writes to to the church at Philippi has more to do with thinking and your mind and your thought process than maybe any other letter that Paul writes. Now in the Old Testament, the basic idea was that you thought in your heart. And they talked about the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And throughout the Old Testament, that's kind of the way the Jews understood that your thinking process was in your heart, and that's the way they talked about it. The Greek culture, which is the backdrop of the New Testament, they talked about the mind. And one of the most interesting things about that, when Jesus is quoting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. When Jesus gives that as the great commandment in the New Testament, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and Jesus adds, and mind. 
because he understood that there were going to be generations who understood the thinking process, something in your mind. And so this is that process. And, and in the book of Philippians, Paul probably reveals his thought process and his thinking process more than any other book. In the first chapter, he's already talked to us about how he was thinking about the difference between living and dying and going on to be with Jesus. In the third chapter, we'll get there eventually, he's going to talk about how he thinks about the things of the past. And he's going to say, and I, I work hard to forget the past, and I'm pressing on to the future, and I'm, I'm looking forward to things, and I'm not living in the past, and particularly the, the failures of the past. And he says, I, that's how he thinks about that. In the fourth chapter, he's going to talk about how he thinks about money. And by the way, tonight we're going to probably talk from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount about material possessions and some amazing things that Jesus gives us out of Matthew chapter 6. Uh, but he's going to talk about how he thinks about money and, and possessions and how he deals with that. In fact, in that fourth chapter, he's even going to say, and by the way, while you're thinking, don't get hung in anxiety. Because anxiety, by the way, is a Greek word that is two roots. One of them is your mind, and the other one is to be divided. And he's going to say, don't do that. And that there's a way to deal with your mind and anxiety. And then he's going to go on a little later, and he's going to say, oh, and by the way, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, can guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then after that, he's going to get to, oh, and by the way, here's the kind of stuff you ought to be thinking about. And then in chapter 2, he's going to get to, this is the mind, the attitude, the kind of thinking you ought to have. And, and he's going to introduce that in these first four verses, and he's going to talk very intently about the way the church as a whole ought to think about life, but also specifically ought to think about each other. And so that's where we're at. So we're going to begin in uh, second Philippi, the second chapter of the book of Philippians, beginning in verse 1. And let me just tell you, Paul is going to sucker him in. He is going to lure him in with this thing. We stayed at the Whittington Hotel last night, and I counted 26 bass boats in the parking lot. I don't know what's going on. Uh, and by the way, I was at a fish fry this week. Uh, at the golf course, and uh, they, uh, all the fish came from Wren Lake. And I said, man, I, just, I know about some of this stuff. I've been driving over Wren Lake an awful lot lately. Uh, but he's going to sucker him in. He's throwing the bait, and he's saying, if, just, just on the off chance, just maybe, if there is any encouragement in Christ, well, duh, I mean, everybody listening saying, well, of course there's encouragement in Christ. If any consolation of love, well, double duh, consolation in the love of Jesus Christ and the cross. If there's any fellowship, koinonia, with the Spirit, this is the body of Christ. Of course, they're talking about koinonia and fellowship. If any affection, if any mercy... Well, they're all saying, well, yeah, all of those things. That's part of being a believer. That's, that's what we've all got together. And they're sitting there as the church, and they're all saying, amen, hallelujah, yes. We got all of that stuff in Jesus. And he says, well, if you got that, this is the way you ought to start thinking. 
If any fellowship with the Spirit in any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. In other words, get on the same page as the church. That if Jesus has done something for you, all of you ought to be thinking the same way, thinking with the same mind and the same heart in the same direction because of Jesus. Having the same love, sharing the same fellowship or feelings, depending on the version, intent or focused on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but rather or instead also for the interests of others. Now, there are a couple of really fascinating things there. He's really got them tied. I mean, uh, if he's done all these things, then here's what you ought to do. And what he's going to basically say, this is, in some sense, the secret to the unity of the body of Christ. And kind of an interesting little thing is he says, and if you'll think this way, and you'll hold on to this kind of love, and you'll have this kind of fellowship, and you'll be focused on the same things, then my joy will be complete. Now, I want to maybe spend a moment there. He's already talked about every time I think about you, church, I rejoice. Every time I think about you, I just thank God and I'm filled with joy. And then he kind of says, but if you do this, if you get this right, my joy will top out. My joy will be complete. I will be one happy camper. I will be as excited. In fact, it's almost as if he's saying, church, if you get this right, this is maybe the biggest and most important thing for the church to get right. Because if you do that, then I'm not worried about you, church in Philippi. You have got it together. I am, this is it. This is the big deal. So this is kind of an important thing for churches to get right. And let me also tell you, it's a tough thing to get right. But it really is one of the ultimate secrets to this idea of unity. So what do you do to get this right? What do you do to have this right spirit, this right thinking? How what does it mean if we're all thinking the same way? Well, first of all, it means that you all never lose sight of the fact that every one of you have the same Savior. I mean, the only reason you're in the body of Christ is because of Jesus. You didn't earn your way. You're not here because you're particularly good or special or anything else. But you're here, first and foremost, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his encouragement, by his love, by his fellowship, and by his spirit. And we are all here because of the same Savior. Now, that ought to keep us together. And as long as we never lose sight of that I'm here because of Jesus, and you're here because of Jesus, and you're here because of Jesus, and that's the reason we're here, that I, I like the phrase... The level ground, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That we all stand equal by the blood of Jesus. We, we really need to not spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to each other. We don't spend that kind of business because we are here because of the body of Christ given for us, crucified and resurrected. So that's the first step to thinking in the right way is to think who we got here by and remember who saved us. Secondly, there's this idea of uh, 
getting rid of selfishness and pride. Basically, he just says, you just got to get that out of the way. That ego business, that pride stuff, that selfishness. Now, you understand we all have a selfish nature. Our ego and our pride are part of our sinfulness. That's part of we all got that. And when we get saved, we are born again. But for some reason, God has left some of that selfishness and pride around. In fact, I talked to somebody today, and they were discussing the stubbornness of their parents. And I just asked uh, if that was something that was in their family genetically. Uh, does it pass on from generation? Well, by the way, you all got it from Adam. You've had it. It's come in the family, and we all got it. And he basically just says, if the church is going to be on the same page and be unified, you got to really struggle with that. you got to do that battle and say that selfishness, that ego, that ambition, that kind of stuff. And, and just let me tell you, a lot of this really comes down to, for some reason as Christians, we love to compare ourselves to each other. I mean, sometimes it's, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as he is. Or I've never done the things that she's done. Or I got some problems, but they're not as bad as that person's problems. And, and we get caught up. And sometimes our biggest pride problem is that we compare ourselves to each other and typically compare ourselves with folks who are worse than us. That's the way it is. And that also kind of leads to this judgmentalism and criticism and we look down on each other. The bottom line is the only person you and I ever can stand to compare ourselves to is to Jesus Christ. And when we compare to Jesus, that reminds us that we're all sinners. And that reminds us of point number one. So we got to fight and we got to go and do our best to get rid of that selfish ambition. But then he gives this idea that says... You and I need to consider ourselves as humble enough to think about other people as being more important. Not as important, not equally important. And that's kind of a, a thing I, I, I think I remember in the movie or the, uh, the musical Oklahoma, there's a thing where Aunt Eller says, I ain't saying I'm as good as anybody else or better than anybody else, but I'll be danged if I ain't just as good. Well, that's not what he says. It's not a, just a matter of treating each other as equals, but he says the secret to the church being what the church ought to be is when I put my personal interests as secondary to Christ's and even to other people. And we'll kind of get on that a little bit more, but this idea of seeing other people as more important. And I would just suggest to you that in every Christian endeavor, that's the way it ought to be. If I think about Christian marriage, what I say to almost every young couple that comes in and wants to get married and do my pre-marriage counseling, that the picture that Jesus paints for us is that a marriage, a Christian marriage, is what it ought to be when the husband says, it's not about me, I am living for my wife and what is best for her, and the wife says, it's not about me, I am living for what is best for my husband and what blesses him the most, and when both of them, putting the other person first, then both of them get everything they need, and that's the kind of marriage that Christ wants. Then if you get into the concept of family, it really works out when parents are raising their children to say, I am willing to sacrifice and maybe even do without so that my children get what they need and I'm willing to let them have those things. And then it flips around when 
your parents are older and the children are willing to sacrifice and say, I'll go do what I need to do for mom or dad and I'll be there for them. And you understand it's this idea of it's not about me, it's about the other people around me. And seeing their needs and seeing what's going on in their life and being aware of it. And, and that's just a, a powerful tool. And that's the way it ought to work in homes and in families. And it ought to work that way in the church. And this, this is pretty powerful well, where Paul just says, if you all could get to where that's the way the entire church was thinking, man, would I be excited. Now, a couple of ways to think about this. And I, um, I thought about this illustration about 15 years ago, the church in Effingham was in the process of getting a new worship pastor. And we were mildly in what are sometimes called the worship wars, where as a church we were trying to decide what worship should be looking like in our church. And we were pretty much a traditional church, and so I did about three, four weeks preaching on worship, and I said this kind of stuff and a lot of kind of stuff. And so then I announced we were going to do a survey in which we were going to let people say what their preference for worship style was. It was the best return survey I have ever done in my life. I mean, normally you ask people to do a survey, nobody fills it out. Everybody wanted to give their word in about what worship should be like. And, and so one of the first questions was, as your personal preference, where would you really like worship to be? And I had a line, and on one end it was traditional, which implied hymns and organ and piano, and that was on one end, and on the other end, it was contemporary, and that was praise band and choruses and other kinds of things. And so I gave him this first question, put an X on your personal preference. I've never seen anything more divided in my life. I mean, we had all kinds of surveys, but I think about 48% of them were out on that end all the way at the end, and 48% were all the way out on that end, and there were a few folks confused in the middle, but everybody else knew exactly what they wanted and what they liked, and they were on both ends. And then the second question was, understanding that you're not the only person in our church where do you think our church ought to be going forward? And I will tell you, I haven't always been happy with the churches I've pastored. <laughs> but that day, I was, my joy was about complete. Now, there were a couple who were on that X, and the second line, they were same X. And there were a couple the same. But when we got to the second one, almost every single survey, the X moved to the middle. In fact, the way it turned out, surprisingly enough, the folks who had said tradition was their preference actually moved across the center over toward the other one. So here's what really happened. Senior adults in our church said, this is what I've always enjoyed but I know that we need to reach young families and young couples and we want to attract them and we want our church to be around in the future. And even though this is my preference, I understand what we need and out of a love for those individuals, I'm okay to say, let's move in that direction. 
And then the folks who are out on that end were able to say, you know what, this is what I really like, but we have senior adults who've been singing hymns their entire life, and, and we ought to honor that, and there ought to be some times when they get to sing some of those songs, and we ought to love them enough to say it's not just all about us, and they moved to the middle, and, and that bell curve that was on the end and went this way went the other way. And for a period of time, we moved, and that was kind of where we were on the other side toward contemporary, and, and we understood that's where it was because we were as a church saying, it's not just about me and my personal preference. And I would like to tell you from that moment on, First Baptist Church Effingham never had another problem. Never had any issue with this selfishness and stuff going on and people being, but that's the reason I was able to stay there for 32 years. It was job security because every week there was something going on with somebody. Somebody was unhappy about something, and so I always had a job. It was, you know, somebody's got to deal with some of this stuff, so that was the way it worked. But, but you understand, when we're thinking to where it's not just about me, it's what's best for the body of Christ. It's what's going to bless everybody. Do you understand how that changes the way the church functions? Then I, I, this week came in, and I, and I don't know, I've never read this in a commentary, and I've never really seen it, so I'm, I'm still kind of wrestling with whether it's valid or not, so you can give me some input. But this idea of the mind of Christ and the fact that we're heading there, I was doing some things and trying to think about Jesus and the stories about him in the Gospels and the, the times where we know what Jesus will think. And sometimes the Gospels will tell us what was in Jesus' mind. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Or we can read in pretty clearly what was going on in Jesus' mind. And, and uh, there are two stories that just sort of connected to me. And one of them is Jesus at 12 years old. It's the only story we have about Jesus as a child. And if you remember, that story is he's at the temple, and his mom and dad get confused. By the way, I'm really glad for that story because it says as parents, you're allowed to mess up and leave your children at home alone and other places. And, you know, if you're not a perfect parent, there's hope for you. Even Mary and Joseph had problems. But I began to think about that when Mary and Joseph finally got back. Three days later, Jesus and remember, he gave up his mind, his awareness. When he became an embryo in Mary's womb, he gave up a lot of that stuff, and he literally had to mature and grow. And it, there's a lot of debate on when did he finally know that he was the Messiah, and when did he finally know that he was going to have to die on the cross to be the Messiah, and when did that become clear to him? And, and nobody really knows, but at 12 years old, he is still maturing, and at 12 years old, he is basically clueless that his mom and dad are worried. I mean, you know, he's excited. He's been there in the temple for the first time because he's now been in the temple of Israel, the court of Israel, and he's been listening to him discuss the scriptures, and, and I guess he's been sleeping in the temple, and people have been feeding him. We don't know what's going on, but he has just been so intense on what's going on, he is in that moment absolutely clueless that his mom and dad are even worried. And I don't think that's sin, that's just immaturity. He's not aware that his actions have consequences and affect other people, and that's part of growing up and maturing, and he has to come to that. And it says afterwards that he went home with them and he was subject to their authority. I think they heard, he heard something about authority on that day. But then it also says that he continued to grow in wisdom, which is understanding. In other words, I think he earned, he, he understood something about how his actions affected his parents that day. And it says he was subject to them, and he, 
he grew in wisdom and in stature, and he grew in favor with God, but he also grew in favor with man. And that he, like all children, had to learn what it meant to get along with other people. And evidently, he did it really well because evidently, his reputation in Nazareth was phenomenal. He was a well-received young man, and he had learned all those things. So you have this moment at 12 where he's kind of clueless about how his actions affect his mother. And then if you fast forward to the cross, if anybody ought to get a, a pass on being selfish and thinking only about themselves, it's probably when you're dying on the cross for the sins of the entire world. I mean, you probably ought to just say, hey, this is kind of a big deal here. This is just about me and I don't have... But that moment where on the cross, the one who at 12 didn't realize his, effects, his actions affected his mother, on the cross stops to say, Mom, here's John. He's going to take care of you. And he's going to be your son from now on. And he's going to watch over you. Do you understand that suddenly there is the ultimate concern about your actions and how they affect other people? The mind of Christ. And this concept that Paul is getting ready, and he's headed toward the mind of Christ, but he's basically saying, listen, church, if you're going to do this right, this is the one thing I really want you to get right, this idea of getting rid of the selfishness and the games and the comparisons and the, and the ambition and the competition, and, and that just has no place. And if I'm really going to be excited, then this is the way it ought to be, and to some extent, the story of Jesus says that's something all of us need to learn. And I'd like to say to you that I'm perfectly adult, but I just want you to know sometimes 12-year-old Roger just sneaks back into the church and says, doggone it, why don't you do things the way I want them done? Sometimes my 5-year-old Roger shows up. <laughs> I try to limit the 2-year-old Roger, but I mean, some of those show up, and sometimes we just got to, man, got to get that 12-year-old thinking out of our minds. And, I, and in almost every church I know, this may be some of the biggest struggle. And sometimes this is the difference between a church that is really on the line and moving forward for Jesus Christ and being effective. It's, it's what's the spirit of the church. And understand that all of us are going to have those weak moments. All of us are going to have those selfish moments. In fact, if some of you take the donut I want, I'm, we're going to have an issue when we get back to donut time. Or the seat that I sit in. Or the songs that I want to sing. Or the length of the sermon. Or the way Sunday school is done. Or, or any number of a hundred things that go on in the body of Christ. And you and I either become self-centered and or we have this mind that comes from Jesus Christ and His love and His fellowship and His encouragement and His mercy and all that He's given us that when we come to the body of Christ, we say, it's not about me. And I see other people and I'm aware of, of their lives and what they want and they need. And, and by the way, I thought one great exercise we could do is that today each of you could put other people first by letting everybody else leave the auditorium before you. But there is kind of a flaw in that. 
Because if you're all just standing by the doors waiting, you, no, you go. No, no, you go. And, and we'll be here till next Thursday. And then somebody will be saying, I got to go. <laughs> and we'll get out. But this mindset that says it's about the bigger picture. And Paul says, that competes my joy. And that's the kind of thinking that, to be honest, doesn't come natural for any of us. Not with selfish natures. That's the Spirit of God. In fact, there's a wonderful verse about the renewing of our minds. And so today, I, uh, you could make my joy complete if we all just said, by the grace of God, my intention, my, my goal is to think with the mind of Christ about each other. And that would take care of all the ministry issues. It'd take care of all the disagreement issues. It'd see us through every business meeting and every decision the church has to make. And it would get a lot of stuff out of the way so the body of Christ could be about the gospel and everything else that we ought to be doing. So, if you got some 12-year-old stuff going on today, grow up. Get past it. Or better yet, say, Jesus, I want you to be in control of my heart and my mind. I want you, Lord, to take control of my heart and my mind. And Lord, let me be a blessing to the people around me. Let's stand and let's sit. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of Living Love. If this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know. If you would like to contact us, find out more about our church, or if you'd like to support our mission, visit ibcbenton.com. That's ibcbenton.com. Or give us a call at 618 439 3513.